Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Poe Murray, chairwoman of Newtown Action Alliance, who talks about the most recent mass shootings in Atlanta and Boulder and the urgent need to pass gun violence prevention legislation. Sean Sellers, previously incarcerated in Connecticut's Supermax prison, and Kebra Smith, a former nurse employed by the Connecticut Department of Correction, who explain why they support legislation to end solitary confinement. And Alexander Maine of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, who discusses the recent Supreme Court ruling in Brazil that dropped charges against popular former president Lula da Silva, who may again run for president next year. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. After a decade of brutal civil war which killed over 400,000, daily life in Syria today is marred by food shortages and a frozen conflict with troops from Turkey, Russia, Iran, and the U.S. remaining in the country. In March 2011, President Bashir al-Assad's troops opened fire on peaceful protesters inspired by the Arab Spring uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt. Anti-government jihadists and secular activists pledged to take up arms, which led to Syrian army attacks on opposition strongholds in the cities of Homs and Aleppo. Assad and Iranian-backed militias waged brutal campaigns against a determined rebel insurgency. However, when Russia intervened in 2015, the rebel groups suffered a series of defeats. Today, the UN estimates 12.6 million people are food insecure in Syria, and the number of people at risk of starvation has doubled in the last year. Moreover, 3.5 million Syrian children cannot go to school since a third of all schools have been destroyed. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres observed that the Syrian people have endured some of the greatest crimes the world has witnessed this century as he urged all parties to take a first step toward peace and negotiate a new constitution. One year into the COVID-19 pandemic, three governors from the nation's most populous states are in political trouble. California Governor Gavin Newsom, criticized for his handling of the pandemic, will likely face a recall election this fall. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, accused of sexual harassment by a growing number of current and former female staffers, in addition to a coronavirus nursing home scandal, is resisting calls for his resignation and or impeachment. Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott also faces calls to resign after 3 million Texans suffered power outages because the state's electric utility was woefully unprepared to deal with a severe winter storm. While state budgets didn't suffer as much as predicted a year ago, the chaos that the coronavirus sowed has shown up in other ways. Because the burden of pandemic policy decision-making was kicked to the states by the Trump administration, which didn't provide the resources necessary to underwrite much-needed lockdowns, popular outrage toward state executives has surged. All three governors are hoping that they can overcome opposition long enough for the arrival of a post-pandemic economic boom, which may be enough to win some forgiveness in the eyes of voters. The American Prospect observes that all three governors are up for re-election in 2022, 
when, according to a number of optimistic forecasts, the economy should be growing rapidly and the vaccination campaign should be complete. During the heat of Black Lives Matter protests in New York City last summer, New York police officers penned in hundreds of peaceful protesters in the Bronx as cops used pepper spray and kicked and punched activists. Sixty protesters were injured, reports Human Rights Watch. The top police commander at the scene was the then chief of department, Terrence Monahan, who has a history of ordering aggressive police tactics against protesters. After the Republican National Convention in 2004, Monaghan was cited by a federal judge for making arrests of peaceful protesters without probable cause. New York State Attorney General Letitia James has filed a federal lawsuit claiming Monaghan actively encouraged and participated in unlawful behavior. Monaghan recently announced he was retiring from the NYPD after 39 years. The move means Monaghan would no longer be subject to departmental discipline. New York's Civilian Complaint Review Board has received 750 complaints from Black Lives Matter protesters against NYPD officers. Yet ProPublica reports that after nine months of investigation, the review board has revealed that only two NYPD officers face serious disciplinary charges. About 60% of the agency's 297 protest-related cases are still open. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. A mass shooting incident in Atlanta on March 16th left eight people, including six Asian American women, dead. The accused gunman purchased a 9mm handgun from a local gun store just hours before he visited three of the city's day spas, where the murders were committed. The Atlanta shootings have focused the nation's attention on the disturbing 150% increase in hate crimes targeting Asian Americans over the past year. Less than a week later, a gunman entered a Boulder, Colorado supermarket with an AR-556 semi-automatic pistol, killing 10 people, including a police officer. The gun was purchased on March 16th, just four days after a judge blocked a ban on assault weapons passed by the city of Boulder in 2018. Every day, more than 100 Americans are killed with guns, and more than 230 are shot and wounded. A total of more than 19,000 people were killed in shootings and firearm-related incidents in 2020, almost a 25% jump from the year before, and the highest death toll in over 20 years. Your reporter spoke with Poe Murray, chairwoman of Newtown Action Alliance and the Newtown Action Alliance Foundation, founded after the December 14, 2012 mass murder of 20 children and six educators at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. Here she talks about the most recent mass shootings and the urgent need to pass federal gun violence prevention legislation. Well, as a Korean-American myself, it was just unbelievably tragic to uh, witness a hate crime being committed against um, people that look like me. And I believe that Donald Trump played a huge role in putting a target 
on our backs, you know, with his rhetoric regarding the coronavirus, calling it the China virus, the Wuhan virus, the Kung flu. Um, he set the stage for, for violence against Asian Americans and, and women as well. It hits very close to home. There's been violence you know, in the um, black and brown communities for decades. And, you know, we've always said that if something so tragic can happen here in Sandy Hook, in a mostly white community, then it can happen anywhere. And none of us are safe from gun violence, as evidenced by another horrific mass shooting um, that occurred in Boulder, Colorado, in a grocery store. The gunman in Atlanta reportedly purchased the 9mm handgun used in the mass murder just hours before the shooting. I wondered if you tell us about the ongoing struggle to strengthen gun safety laws in states like Georgia, but more broadly across the country and at the federal level. Sure. So we made significant progress electing uh, John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock um, as senators, and they will definitely contribute to um, you know, possibly voting on gun control measures that we've been pushing for so long. But meanwhile, you know, Georgia has an opportunity to take action, but right now they're working to suppress votes, and that's a problem because when they suppress votes, then they will not win a majority of gun safety uh, candidates who will pass legislation to protect um, their constituents. But we know that uh, gun laws like permit to purchase and waiting periods could have prevented uh, the mass shooting tragedy in Atlanta. The 21-year-old should not have been able to um, purchase a gun, you know, within hours of passing the background check bill. So the background check, you know, legislation is is so important, but there are an array of policies that need to pass in addition to the universal background check that Chris Murphy has been fighting so hard for. If you could just recap for us, for our listeners, run down the most important gun safety laws that you feel Congress must pass at this moment when we have a president that has said he will sign such legislation. Well, there are so many important legislative proposals that need to pass, and we're so thankful that so many members of the House and the Senate are introducing and reintroducing their uh, bills that they have um, presented um, in the past. But the two bills that have passed out of the House currently is H.R. 8 and H.R. 1446. H.R. 8 requires uh, universal background checks. Uh, requiring all um, gun sales to go through a background check uh, to close the private sale loopholes. And H.R. 1446 will give the FBI 10 days to complete the background check. Uh, That bill does not close the Charleston loophole completely, but Senator Blumenthal has a bill to completely uh, close that loophole. Um, Basically, you know, he says um, no background check, then there should be no buy. So we support that um, as a stronger um, legislative proposal. But, you know, we have been championing for a ban on assault weapons for all these years, for, for all the reasons that you and I know. Um, a gun, a weapon that can be used to kill 20 children and six educators in less than five minutes do not belong in the hands of civilians. And we've been working really closely with uh, Representative David Cicilline, and Senator Dianne Feinstein to pass their bill, which is the same bill, you know, in the House and in the Senate. 
during last Congress, we acquired 216 co-sponsors for the House bill. And we had some, you know, a silent support for the bill should it be uh, brought up for a vote. So we know that it would have passed the House. But even the Democrats are, you know, careful um, with pushing uh, more aggressively for uh, bills like assault weapons ban. But we know that it would have passed. And at this point in time, um, we've been urging President Biden also to take a lead on banning assault weapons again, because he did so in 1994 when it passed. Sadly, that expired after 10 years. Um, But this new bill would not. And, you know, we've asked him to be a champion and work with um, everyone in the House and, and the Senate to pass this bill. It has to be part of the equation. That was Poe Murray, chairwoman of the Newtown Action Alliance, and the Newtown Action Alliance Foundation. Learn more about the national campaign to pass federal gun violence prevention legislation by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Efforts to end or reduce solitary confinement in prisons and jails around the U.S. have had some success recently. Solitary reform in New Jersey in 2019 states, No person can be isolated for more than 20 days in a row or for more than 30 days during any 60-day period. In mid-March, the New York State Legislature passed the HALT Act, which limits to 15 days the number of consecutive days an inmate can spend in solitary confinement. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, on an average day, 4.4% of prison inmates were held in some form of solitary confinement. Out of more than 1,400,000 people in prisons, not counting jails, that's 63,000 individuals. 10% of them spent more than 30 days in solitary. The United Nations defines torture as isolation from other humans for more than 15 days, with serious mental health impacts for some after just seven days. The federal government says such isolation is more common among young prisoners, LGBT prisoners, in those with mental health conditions, and that all these groups are more likely to suffer increased harm. In Connecticut, advocates are now working to pass the PROTECT Act, which would require that inmates be in their cells no more than 16 hours a day, except for emergency situations. The measure would end the painful dehumanizing practice of in-cell restraints and provides for regular communication with an inmate's loved ones. Two other important provisions of the bill are the creation of oversight within the prison system and offering mental health services to correction officers. At a rally on March 18th, before a public hearing on the legislation, several people spoke who had either been incarcerated, worked inside the prisons, or had loved ones who experienced solitary confinement. We hear first from Sean Sellers, a member of the ACLU Smart Justice Campaign, who had previously been incarcerated at Connecticut's Supermax Northern Prison. I was interred in the Northern CI in 2011 as a pretrial detainee. I had yet to be convicted of anything. Furthermore, the crime I was accused of was a Class D, low-level, nonviolent offense. The excuse used by the Department of Corrections Administration to bury me alive in a concrete hole for a year was a co- code of penal discipline violation again nonviolent. Why a pretrial detainee would be subject to the Department of Corrections Code of Penal Discipline deserves analysis. 
what is relevant for this occasion is why, with only the aforementioned data at hand, this was satisfactory to meet the criteria for placement in a supermax prison. This goes to show the depths that the DOC have sunk to maintain the relevance of supermax philosophy. The lengths of those who proselytize a punitive response to, the, to society's ills and maintain a cynical and dystopian vision of society at all costs. In my youth, I had read the book Papillon with its grim descriptions of the penal colonies at Devil's Island in colonial French Guyana. Imagine my horrors to find out that in the shadows of a bucolic New England in the 21st century, in a supposedly progressive first world state, an institution so barbaric and medieval to carefully create conditions engineered specifically to inject men and women with a spiritual sickness so insidious as to eat human beings alive from the inside out. That individuals in this society have invested so much sweat and treasure in cages and chains, have exhausted so much intellectual resource for a philosophy whose core moral absolute is the destruction of his fellow man. In response to a letter regarding solitary confinement in Northern, the UN Special Reporter on Torture condemned the use of solitary confinement practices in Connecticut. The closure of Northern is an important symbolic event and a good first step, but let, it, let us not pat ourselves on the back just yet. Because that, this edifice, symbolic of a deep abiding philosophy of punishment and torture and basic ill will to mankind, still stands requires reckoning. Because while one brick remains standing upon another, this house of horrors is a monument and memorial to the worst mankind has to offer. Just as backwards and degenerate as any conf confederate monument, for surely they emanate from the same abnormal thinking that produced slavery, the black codes, and Jim Crow. And more than the structure itself, it is the diseased and pathological thinking that has created this edifice which must change. Because as the building is shuttered, the sick thinking and lockdown mindset remains with this draconian ideology of punishment above all else. Since the 90s, Connecticut DOC has implemented a closed movement protocol across the various security facilities. Now more than ever, more of Connecticut's facilities operate on the supermax approach because it streamlines and expedites the ease for which to run the facilities rather than what is best procedure to ensure that these prisoners will be healthy and ready to be cooperating members of society. It is what is easier for the staff to get through their day remaining as shiftless as possible. The totality of Connecticut prisons are on the 20-hour lockdown, controlled movement protocol. This ensures that mental health conditions will deteriorate and exacerbate, and the probability that we'll continue to return home to stagger through the, our streets with broken spirits and shattered psyches. Let's make sure we don't let that happen by passing common sense legislation like uh, that is covered in uh, HB 1059. That was Sean Sellers, formerly incarcerated at the Supermax prison in Connecticut. Kebra Smith was a nurse at Northern with four children to support, but she left her secure job with good benefits when she witnessed the treatment of prisoners there. In training, they teach you, don't treat these people like people. Treat these people like criminals. The individuals who were incarcerated were locked in their 
cages, because that's what they are, for 23 hours a day. And as I would medicate these people, and I would say, you know, how are you today? The guards would say, don't interact with them. Don't say, and I'm like, that's just basic. I can't not do basic things. They're humans. That was Kebra Smith, a former nurse employed by the Connecticut Department of Correction, preceded by Sean Sellers, previously incarcerated at Connecticut's Supermax Prison. This segment was recorded and produced by Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus. Learn more about efforts to end or reduce prison solitary confinement by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On March 8th, a justice on Brazil's Supreme Court annulled corruption convictions against the nation's popular former Workers' Party president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, giving him the option of challenging far-right incumbent President Jair Bolsonaro in next year's national election. Lula, as he's affectionately known, was convicted following a broad investigation into a bribery scandal called Operation Car Wash, which prevented him from running against Bolsonaro in the 2018 election. Lula served 580 days in prison before being released in November 2019. Former federal judge Sergio Moro, who presided over Lula's case, will face a trial of his own on allegations that he engaged in ethical violations. Messages leaked by The Intercept in 2019 revealed that Moro had been actively directing prosecutors in the former president's case. Recent press reports say Brazil's Supreme Court could still reinstate charges against Lula. Your reporter spoke with Alexander Main, Director of International Policy with the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Here he discusses the recent Supreme Court ruling and the likelihood that Lula, who was widely popular during his eight years in office, will run against Bolsonaro, who now faces record public disapproval for his disastrous handling of the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, this is really reversing uh, an enormous injustice that was done to former President Lula. He was um, convicted on extremely dubious charges by a very sort of openly politicized judge with a very um, sort of right-wing political agenda. Um, He really always made that pretty clear. And uh, basically, under the Brazilian system, the judge can also serve as kind of investigator and prosecutor, and and there is no jury trial. So the fate of Lula really was in the hands of this judge and then a cluster of prosecutors who worked extremely closely with the judge. And in fact, uh, there were leaks of communications between the judge and these prosecutors that showed that really there was extremely unethical collusion going on between all of them on Lula's case. Uh, and that from the outset, their objective you know, wasn't to determine the guilt or innocence of Lula, but rather to find some way of preventing him from running again for president. The injustice has, to a great extent, been reversed. Um, there is 
possibility still that there might be another review of the case within the Supreme Court. And so there's still a little bit of suspense, but it seems fairly certain that this decision is going to hold going forward. And therefore, that Lula will be able to uh, participate in the next elections, which are taking place in 2022. And Lula's um, quite a bit ahead of Bolsonaro in the polls already. I mean, you know, he hasn't started campaigning. He just only just got this case dismissed against him. So um, that really changes the political equation in Brazil. At this point, there was no very strong um, opposition leadership to sort of contest Bolsonaro's rule, even though it's been rather disastrous. And we mentioned the pandemic. That's one area. Uh, Brazil at the moment has its highest uh, rate of deaths from the pandemic that it's had since the beginning. And it's one of the worst places in the world. The pandemic is growing and Bolsonaro is uh, completely opposed to any sort of lockdown or um, social distancing measures. He's come out against them. He's even come out against the vaccine. In the meantime, there is hope of significant political change now that uh, Lula can be politically active again. Alex, what can you tell us about the media in Brazil and its reporting on Lula being cleared of these charges, enabling him to run for president in 2022? I've read that the Brazilian press generally is quite hostile to Lula and the Workers' Party policies, and it's really setting up the country for a class war of, of a sort. Well, the media has certainly been very hostile to Lula and the Workers' Party uh, historically for a very long time, and I think that's one of the primary reasons that uh, Lula had to run three times for president before he succeeded, before uh, Brazil finally had a left-leaning president for the first time uh, since the military dictatorship there, which, of course, lasted from 64 until the early 1980s. Now, what's interesting is that right now I would say that the media is not quite as hostile, in part because I think Bolsonaro has been so bad for business for Brazil. It's sort of isolated Brazil internationally. And so I think the very same sort of corporations and banks and so on that supported Bolsonaro originally feel that he's now a liability. And so I think they're sort of tentatively um, more open to Lula. But I think, you know, that could change very quickly if he makes it clear that he is going to continue to defend the more left-wing platform, uh, then they're very, very likely to grow just as hostile as they have been in the past. That was Alexander Maine, Director of International Policy with the Center for Economic and Policy Research. For more news and commentary on the political situation in Brazil, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. 
There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFI in Ithaca, New York, WHYR in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, WTND in Macomb, Illinois, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.